It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Coming up on today's episode is Wednesday, so it's disunited kingdom political news in the four corners of the UK. And of course, we continue our search for the most fun stories from across the country. Uh, before that, though, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel. And today, it's Alibert. The Columnists with Alibert, Alice Thompson and Robert Crampton on Times Radio. Yes, a very good morning to Robert Crampton in the studio. Morning, Robert. Morning, Matt. Nice to see you. And Alice Thompson beaming in from outer space. Good morning, Alice. Morning. Are you actually in Devon? I am Not actually in Devon. It's my last, my final day, I think. Oh, and then you've got to come back to London. And then I've got to come back to London forever. Come back and do some work. Well, not forever. Well, I have been doing some work. Have you got, <laughs> the, have you got the harvest in, Alice? <laughs> do you know what? Actually, it is true. It was the last, yesterday was the last day. Cool. It's all there, all in. Brilliant. Got more chickens, had my chicken eggs today, and then it's back to the big smoke. Well, you'll be back down there. You need to be self-sufficient. You need to, you know, that's good. Start, start stockpiling for the, for the coming winter. Well, I was thinking that. I thought of bringing back the chickens to London, actually, because they, you know, they lay quite a few eggs every day. I could live off that. They'll get nicked. Or <laughs> <laughs> well, they'll get into a gang or something. Yeah. Yeah. The fox, the fox, yeah. Will fox, the fox yeah. will get them. The fox will get them. The fox will get them. But it's all well, that brings us on nicely to your columns there. It's all the sort of the side hustle, hustling. Uh, uh, you think it will define how you would work in the future, Alice? We, we went to um, Kenya this summer and it was all about hustling. So even the elections were all about who could hustle best. And um, everyone, it's called the Hustler Nation now and it's every hustle matters is the slogan for the new president-elect. And I think there is that sense now that things have gone so wrong and you've got the cost of living crisis all around the world and inflation that the people who now are going to do best are the people who aren't who were sort of hustlers, but not exactly in the old-fashioned world. It's not meant to be either about sex or about <laughs> doing something illegal. It's more about just getting loads of different jobs, trying to do stuff, trying to just trying to make your way in the world. And it's very much what the younger generation are talking about. Whereas for me and my generation, it does feel a bit... Del Boy. Um, yeah, dodgy, sleazy. Well, that's yeah. what I think. I yeah. think like Del Boy or the guy, is it Walker in Dad's Army? Yeah, he's a spit. That's sort of like, yeah, oh, yeah, I've got to draw some tights. Yeah, well, that was black, <laughs> black market. And yeah. yeah, you think of it as a sort of, it hasn't got good connotations for our generation. It's yeah. got, I mean, yeah, Del Boy would be sort of on the edge of legality yeah. or, or, or over the edge of legality. Uh, whereas what I got gathered from Alice's column was that it's now uh, been appropriated uh, as a good thing. Uh, in terms of having lots of different careers, and I mean, and, and I read that with a with a sense of recognition in terms of my own kids. I mean, they uh, they I mean, I've had the same job in the same place for thirty odd years. Yeah, they won't do that. In fact, my son's already embarked on what he's, he's only twenty five, and he's probably now on his third career. Wow, and that's just normal. Coming like having yeah, a sort yeah. of uh, changing careers and also having several jobs at once, which I think is what this is more about. Yeah, it's like yeah, having yeah. a portfolio. Of stuff, so you could have a job, and then but you could be doing flogging something on the internet, doing or, something on the side. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I mean that. I mean that. That's that's cool. I mean, 
And Alice, is it? Um, I mean, it's, is it sort of a generational thing losing faith in sort of the big employer and the? I mean, even the lifetime. You know, the life we talked before about how you know you know Robertson anomaly staying in the same place for mm. forty years, or whatever. Thirty. Thirty right. years. How many? Be forty before I know. Well, it, well, you've got another good ten years left, in <laughs> yeah. you? I hope so. Yeah. yeah. Um, but Alice, is it, is it a sort of? A sort of feeling that, you know, the world isn't going to be there for us. So you need to be hustling yourself because you can't rely on, you know, a big employer looking after you long term. Yep. So I think what's happened is that you get the millennials who've all gone into these big companies. Well, not all, but a lot of them and are working their way up and actually are really disenchanted and aren't going to get their own you know, flat even, and are struggling with mortgages and are having a difficult time. And there is this sense of the great resignation when a lot of them are giving up. Whereas Generation Z seem to be much more, not optimistic at all, but they're just going for it. Exactly as mm -hmm. Robert said, so my children, the same sort of age, all are doing several jobs. They're all trying to work out how they can flog stuff on the internet. They're, yeah. all, they're, they're all just up for it. They know they're not going to get anything. They're the generation that we're already told from a very early age that the whole country and the, you know, the whole world wasn't going to owe them a favour. They were going to have to do something if they wanted to get anywhere at all. So I think they're probably more pragmatic and more down to earth about it and more just like, you know, what can I do? How can I just make some money? And, and and in a way, I think it may be mm. more positive for them. Whereas I think the millennials are really struggling because I think they, they were the ones that had quite a nice childhood and then ended up having a very difficult time now. I think it's about people learning how to monetize things on the internet as well, which a previous generation might yeah. not have done. Uh, so, you know, you might have had eBay making all the money on selling stuff secondhand, but now people are just going to do that themselves. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And uh, uh, that's where the sort of entrepreneurship seems to come in. People finding... I mean, I look at the internet and think, how does that make money? And but for a twenty-year-old, they're finding ways of doing that. Yeah, it's interesting that the, the overlap in politics was, it, um, and you were talking about it in Kenya, uh, Alice. This, this sort of it's sort of seen as a trait, it's something that you sort of appealing in someone who has hustled their way through and done loads of different things, and and admiring someone who's made money. And maybe maybe it's it's that versus you know I don't know Richie Sunak making a lot of money in the city or whatever it is. Mm. It's weird how we judge different people. You know, the way that people made money so somehow tells us something about them. Yeah, so I think the problem is that it can go either way. So Andrew Tate, who is um, online and has made billions and has his Hustler University, uh, is obviously not the way to do it um, because, you know, he is sexist, misogynist, uh, racist, and, you know, has been asked to leave most of the online platforms. But there is that sense that, that they want to find people, I think, the younger generation who have made it and are making it despite everything going wrong. And and I think they will find their own role models. And I think what they are looking at is the old establishment and thinking that's not going to happen to us. You know, we're not we're not going to make it in the normal ways anymore. Is there really like a tax thing and a pensions thing that we should be worried about? There's a whole generation of people who, you know, if you're hustling around, are you, are you making enough money to, you know, put some aside and later no. in life? And... No, no, and neither are you buying property, which yeah. is the other form of pensions i suppose uh yeah i guess we should be worried about it but i mean when you're 25 you don't worry about it yeah do you? yeah uh, yeah i don't think they even thinking about that they're just no. thinking about kind of making enough just to keep going really and that is their problem that you know that it's much tougher after both you know you've had you know the crash and then you had the pandemic and now you've got the cost of living i think they're all just trying to find ways to make some money at all and they're in a completely different situation than any other generation yeah, have been for years they've had a raw really. deal they've had a really raw deal so if they're trying to I wouldn't castigate them for not worrying about their pension if they're trying to 
and all <laughs> just make ends meet. Yeah, exactly, now. exactly. I just yeah, yeah. make something of themselves. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, let's move on and talk about well, partly Mikhail Gorbachev. I was also quite interested because we took we did this yesterday with Danny and David because mm. yesterday Danny was Daniel Fix. I was sixty. Oh goodness! Mm. Right, uh, uh, and so we ended up talking about first political memories. Right, he remembered uh, <laughs> Robert Kennedy's assassination. <laughs> oh, did he? David Ivanovich remembered his dad taking him up Downing Street. Yeah, and uh, saying that's where the prime minister lives, and it was Harold Macmillan. Yeah, uh, my, what was my, the nineteen seventy election? My dad was a big Labour man, uh, and he was also, uh, you know, he, he never lost his temper. Out, but the one, one of the few times I've seen him in a bad mood and angry was on the morning after the, 19, the June 1970 election, which Labour were expected to win, and the Conservatives won it. Uh, so, uh, surprisingly, there were some bad trade figures or something. It's always, you know, supposedly that was the reason. And I bounded in as a six-year-old, and he uh, was really cross with me. So that's my... And, and I understood, even then, I understood that it was kind of legitimate for him to be cross because his lot had lost. Yeah, that's interesting. That's really interesting. Um, mm. uh, but what about you, Alice? I think mine was the Falklands, weirdly. I mean, I was quite old. I was about 10 or 11, but it was that sense. I don't think I thought there could ever be a conventional war again. So we were all really worried about nuclear war and about, you know, pre-Gorbachev, about that sense of, you know, we, you know, that was what I, we were worried about. We were worried about mushrooms and um, being... But we weren't worried about a sort of straightforward conventional war. And I remember being absolutely stunned that it could even happen or where the Falklands was or that we could go to war with another country like that. I kind of thought that was all over. So I think that for me was my first formative, you know, political moment was just realising that, you know, there could be wars with Britain and another country rather than, you know, just conventional wars rather than nuclear ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't realise Aronovich was that old. Well, no, exactly. <laughs> when Donald McMillan was still Prime Minister. That's what he said. Crikey. Yeah. He's 68, I think I, wow, I, okay. I, I uh, Fair looked him up on the old yeah. uh, Wikipedia. Um, so let's talk about Mikhail Gorbachev now, mm. because clearly there's, a, there's, a, there's probably a whole, there's probably two things going on. Maybe the, the, the young hustlers don't really know what we're talking about. Yeah. I feel slightly on the cusp of it. I was, yeah. uh, well, in fact, You're I was, way too young. I was, <laughs> How old I, are you, Matt? I'm 40 next month. Right. Yeah. Uh, okay. So I, but in fact, I, I said, it was interesting, actually. Yesterday I said my first moment was like watching Dominic... Um, not Dominic, Nigel Lawson uh, budgets. He had to have the telly, yeah, yeah. had to have the telly on in the yeah, kitchen yeah. because the budget was going to tell us what's happened to booze and facts. Yeah. Um, but actually, Mikhail Gorbachev is definitely a, a, a someone in my, you know, I knew who he was maybe because the birthmark, you know, was an inch. Yeah. You know, he stood out. Amongst mm. all the March, other 80, March eighty-five, he came. He yeah. was general secretary. So how old were you? What were you then? Three. Yeah. So it was late, later. Later. He was around. Yeah. Berlin Wall coming down was definitely a thing I was sort of sure. conscious of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I heard him speak in Moscow a few months after he was uh, made general secretary. Did you? Uh, yeah, at the Olympic Stadium in Moscow, 19, summer of 1985. Yeah, wow. and uh, yeah, I mean he was he was a big deal, and he's obviously now reviled in his home country, and we think that's uh, terrible. I, I would sort of I was just trying to sort of look at it from a kind of Russian point yeah. of view this morning, and it's like you know Lord North, the Prime Minister who lost mm. America. We, he's not a great figure in British yeah, yeah, politics yeah. now. And I guess if I was a Russian, I might I could see possibly why they look at him in that way because yeah. you've got this empire and it's huge and dominant and it's suddenly it's not there anymore. I'm not excusing what's happened since in Russia or certainly yeah, yeah. what's not what's happening now. But I can see why, as a just as not even necessarily a nationalist, but just as an ordinary Russian, you might think this guy wasn't as great as we all think he was. I suppose mm. that's an interesting point, Alice. And also, just thinking, 
because of what's happening in Ukraine, rather than thinking Mikhail Gorbachev, you know, old guy, was in power a long time ago, yeah. dies, we remember yeah. what happened in the 80s. Actually, it's, you know, it's all relevant right now because of what's happening in Ukraine, that it's not just history, it's, you know, it's still, you know, history's still happening. Yeah, I, mean, I showed the children that Pizza Hut ad today because it's just <laughs> an extraordinary <laughs> ad. Yeah. They couldn't believe it either, that sense that it just showed how far Russia had come, that you had this ad that was talking about a family in Pizza Hut discussing whether or not Perestroika and, and Gorbachev was a good idea at all. And then you know, they all then praise him for having brought Pizza Hut to Russia. And you, you just couldn't get an ad like that now. But you can imagine, you know, President Putin doing anything like that, that mm -hmm. life has changed again and again and again since Gorbachev. And I do remember meeting with Reza, his wife, um, and we went and, you know, we, all, all the female journalists obviously were asked to talk to Reza. Um, but it, it was rather phenomenal. And he was, and it was that era of just really big people. So, you know, you had Mandela. President Reagan, yeah. you had Mandela, you had Thatcher, um, you had Mitron. They were just such huge figures. Yeah. And I don't know whether it's because we've got older, but I just feel... It was just a different era. And in Putin, a way, in a way, is a big figure, but it's not the same. These were people who had really astonishing ideals and ideas. In a way, he was the sort of F.W. de Klerk figure, wasn't he? Uh, whereas mm. I don't know what white South Africans think of de Klerk, but I think uh, I, I don't think they... It's not like they hate him for ending apartheid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they think, you know, that had to happen. Whereas the, the Gorbachev paid that price, didn't he? Yeah. Amongst, his own, amongst his own people. Uh, and they haven't... Russia... I mean, I think I've read that. It's not, this is not an original thought, but... Uh, Russia has not had a reckoning with its past, has yeah, it? That's yeah. the, that is the problem, and that is and that is where all that kind of poison that Putin is yeah, is yeah. drawing on, and yeah, we're now seeing the worst of. That's where that's coming from. Yeah. Uh, now that wasn't Gorbachev's fault, uh, but there was something about that era that there was. It was just it went from it went from one thing. I mean, it was a mess and it had to crumble, but then suddenly, I mean, I remember going to Moscow in 1992, just after the breakup. And there were people, you know, middle-class, well-to-do people just selling anything they had, lining yeah. up in a, in a line in Red Square. It was, it was carnage. And, that is, and we're still seeing the fruits of that yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I suppose the thing, uh, what he did had to happen, but basically the, it wasn't finished. And no. So, and so the, the grievance and all of that is still, no. is still there. No, and any sort of you know, truth and reconciliation yeah, yeah. process like they had in South Africa is simply, I mean, quite the opposite. Happened. Just because people don't know what we're talking about about the advert, I think we've got it. This is the, this is the, the Mikhail Gorbachev Pizza Hut advert. Sometimes nothing brings people together like a nice hot pizza from Pizza Hut. <laughs> Fair dues. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Phenomenal. It must be one of the best ever at. Hello, and we'll, uh, we'll talk. I mean, extraordinary. We're going to talk more about Mikhail Gorbachev uh, in a bit. We've got Bridget Kendall, BBC's former Moscow uh, correspondent, is going to join us uh, shortly. Um, I just finally wanted to. Uh, which, what do you want to do? Have we had a carnival wedding festival? Uh, well, I can say can do both very Go quickly. On, um, she's only nineteen. She'll come again. Leave you know, her alone. Everyone lose. And very, it's, it's very, you know, it's fluid. Women's tennis at the moment. Anyone, yeah. it seems that anyone can beat anyone. So yeah. you know, no worries. You know. I quite like her phrase about this. She doesn't have a target on her back. Yeah, you know, she's yeah, got it out of the way. She's yeah. been there. Good for she's, her. She's out. That's fine. Good She'll come her. again. Yeah, and she's got a you know, mid, yeah, hundreds of thousands of pounds deal with Dior. Dior. She, and, she, she doesn't know. need a side hustle, does she? No, she doesn't. Well, she does. She's got. She's got one already. She's got one already. She's um, done it. And also, Reading Festival. You just think actually, it's the same thing. It's like 15, 16 year olds. You know, it, you know. It was always yeah. the same. We think it's got worse, but God, I can remember when we were there and, you know, mm. I can remember my older children were there. It, it, it's always going to be rough. And I feel the same with 
Emma at that age, you know, stuff goes up and stuff goes down. And, you know, mm. it's amazing that she, she did it so young, but she's got the rest of her life now. Yeah. And also, you know, Reading, it only takes half a dozen idiots. Yeah. It's not, a, you know, it's it might, not. A, might, might, yeah. Reading was always the rough festival anyway. Yeah, Reading was always the, 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 like the metal one yeah. when I was, you know. Yeah. But then it became a sort of rite of passage for kind of posh Londoners to get yeah, to do to after go, their yeah, GCSEs. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so maybe it's, it's gone so, rough it's again. It's so funny, Reading, because it's right, basically right in the middle of the town. Yeah. And so, you know, people go and get picked up by their mums and can go and have yeah. a shower and then they go yeah. back again. It's nice. like proper. <laughs> It's not proper probably like not, five days in Glastonbury. It's probably not rough at all. Then you probably just was it take two people to set fire to a couple of tents? It's not really. A, it's not a. It's not. It's what <laughs> sociologists yeah. call the moral panic, isn't it? Yeah. Where it's actually something and something and nothing. Marred, marred, marred does a lot of work. Work mm. in a stuff. Marred by violence. Was yeah. it? Yeah. Marred's one of those words you only ever read in newspapers. You don't. Yeah. Nobody, nobody ever actually uses it. It's like dubbed. <laughs> <laughs> He's been dubbed the blah blah blah. Yeah. No, he hasn't. By one one <laughs> wag, one yeah. onlooker. Alice Thompson and Robert Crampton then. Of course, you can read them both in the Times of your week. Just get yourself a subscription, for goodness sake. Why haven't you done that yet? Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash timesredbox. Up next is Dish United Kingdom. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. From Land's End to John O'Groats, St. David's to Southend-on-Sea, and Belfast to Bognor Regis. England, Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland. This is Disunited Kingdom on Times Radio. Yes, it's that time of the week where we get political news from the four corners of the UK. Uh, we'll also do the, uh, the hunt for the most fun part of the country as well. We'll do that a bit later on. First... Uh, who is on the panel uh, flying the flag for Wales? Kieran Jones is head of news at Wales Online. Hi, Kieran. Hi, Matt. How's it going? Good to have you with us. Thanks very much for joining us. In Scotland, Rachel Watson is Scottish political editor of the Scottish Sun. Hi, Rachel. Good morning. Morning to you. In Northern Ireland, Brendan Hughes is political reporter for Belfast <laughs> Live. Hi, Brendan. Good morning. Nice to have you with us. And flying the flag for England today, Sarah Booker-Lewis is the local democracy reporter for the Brighton and Hove News. Morning, Sarah. Good morning. What a catalogue of cheery tales that we've got to work our way through today. Do we want to start with sewage or strikes or warm hubs? Let's start with sewage. It's always the big story uh, down on the south coast for you, Sarah. Yes. Um, a lot of people are really angry uh, about the sewage 
It hasn't directly affected us here in Brighton and Hove, but our immediate neighbours in Southwick and Shoreham to the west and Saltdean to the east are, are, are getting the sewages outflowing into the sea. One of the really frustrating things is, is here in Brighton and Hove, our, our health committee had Southern Water come and speak to them um, earlier this summer. And the, the person who is in charge of the storm drains, he said, you know, the, the water condition has never been better. There's boys out to sea measuring the, the water quality. It's never been better, which may well apply to Brighton and Hope. We're a little island surrounded by this sewage being pumped into the sea. And people, a lot of people are saying, actually, I don't want to pay my water bill now. You're getting millions of pounds from us, but you're not looking after our water. Um, and uh, is it affecting people? Because, you know, when I went down to the beach a couple of weeks ago, actually a bit further along the coast from you, I did find myself sort of Googling, trying to find maps. And it was a bit the same. Well, this beach seems OK, but all the others around seem to have it. You know, is it affecting people going in the sea and that sort of thing in, in Brighton itself? Uh, not not actually in Brighton itself, but it's, it's been our neighbours. Yeah. So there was, there was a big story covered by my colleagues in the Argus about um, in Seaford, a woman just suddenly found herself literally swimming in effluent. That's the polite way of putting it. We don't really, you know, it's 11 yeah. o'clock, people are having their morning coffee. Yeah, she found herself swimming in it. And that, it, it is horrendous. It takes me back really to the 70s because I'm, I'm from here and I remember as a child suddenly realising that I was swimming amongst things that weren't so very nice. And we've, we've had blue flag beaches for decades and now it's all going a bit wrong. Well, wow. Anyone, anyone else having sewage troubles in your part of the world? No, good. Right, well, actually in Northern Ireland. Go on, go on. <laughs> I was go just going to say, well, there's an issue in Northern Ireland in relation to Belfast City um, that the, the water infrastructure system isn't really supporting the, I suppose, a revitalization and redevelopment of the city. Um, recently, we reported how there have been 140 planning applications in the city where the public water company in Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland Water, has had to raise concerns about its network capacity issues to be able to connect those proposed developments up to the struggling sewage system. So basically, there's a lack of infrastructure in Northern Ireland, particularly in the city centre, that's meaning that suppose a redevelopment of the city um, is not being done because there just isn't that water infrastructure to support it. So it's going to be a big issue um, coming down the tracks if it's not if there's not a massive amount of funding put into it. Yeah, that's, yeah. So that's a big uh, that is another issue in uh, in Northern Ireland. Well, let's let's uh, stick with you uh, in uh, in Northern Ireland now, Brendan. Um, you were talking about uh, was it the Stormont Assembly versus the Belfast campus, the university? What's going on there? I'll tell you what, we'll come back to Brendan because it's not, well, uh, it's right. not an amazingly there, brilliant issue, line. We'll come, we'll, Brendan, we'll come back to you in a minute. We'll try and get you on another line. Uh, let's go to Scott now. Uh, Rachel, strike. Or, or, how are you coping? Are you surrounded by bin bags right now? How many bin bags can you see right now? I can't see any bin bags <laughs> right now because, thankfully, the strike in Edinburgh finished on Tuesday. So they have been very quick. Um, the workers have been back, they were back yesterday, so they've been very quick to pick up the rubbish. Um, there are some other cities that remain on strike because they haven't, um, COSLA, the umbrella body, uh, the council leaders haven't been able to give a deal that the unions are happy with yet. Um, so other strikes end today in the other 13 cities where bin strikes are, 
but if there's no deal by next Monday, um, all the councils who are out on strike, I think it's around 21, including Edinburgh again, will be back on strike next week. And some of those uh, will also include school staff. So we could see schools um, closed next week because of strikes as well. So we are seeing this kind of escalation of strikes in Scotland at the moment. And, you know, luckily the festival's over now. So another strike in Edinburgh might not be as bad as it has been over the last month or the last two weeks, because I mean, Edinburgh, I don't know if anyone's been there, but it has been pretty rank, um, to be honest. Um, so it might not be as bad, but I think the unions have said that they will continue to escalate these uh, the action over the next months if they can't get a deal with COSLA over uh, the pay. And what's the political uh, impact of all that? Who's getting the blame for it? Is it just being, you know, siding with councils? I mean, obviously some of those councils are SNP run. Is there any sort of political risk for uh, Nicola Sturgeon in this? Because it's the sort of thing that people remember in the 1970s, talk about the rubbish piling up in the streets. It's such a visual thing. It's a more powerful visual image than, you know, trains that aren't running. Bin bags in the street. Is that is that causing a political problem for Nicola Sturgeon? Yeah, I think you're right. I think when you see the bin strikes and how much of an impact they have on everyone, because it's so visual, it's such a visual thing. And if that continues to happen, um, when Edinburgh, Edinburgh was the first council, the workers there to go on strike, and that was all put on the Labour-led council. So there was a lot of people in the SNP, politicians, even government ministers saying, you know, this was Edinburgh Council's fault, the Labour leadership there. And then just two days later or something, we had Glasgow-led council, um, SNP-led councils going on strike as well in Glasgow and other areas. So, you know, it's all, it's all this, it happens all the time in Scotland and elsewhere. It's always someone else's fault. But I think the problem for Nicola Sturgeon is that the last few days in particular, um, there's been a lot of criticism of her because she's had five appearances across the festivals in Edinburgh. She's been at the Book Festival, appeared at the Fringe Festival. She flew off to Copenhagen to open a new Nordic office for the Scottish government, when actually she's been she's not really been involved in um, the strike actions. She's said very little about what's going on. Her deputy, John Swinney, has started to have crisis talks with the unions and uh, COSLA to try and bring this to an end but the Scottish government say that they have no more money to give and um, so the unions are unhappy with not just the councils but they're also blaming the Scottish government because they say that the Scottish government has to find additional money. It's interesting somebody just texted in uh they haven't said where they are but they said they may have been quick in tourist areas but my street still has a small mountain of bin bags um, but yeah, there's no name on that. Uh, so, uh, uh, yeah. I think there is also a risk in Edinburgh as well. So for some areas, um, the bin strike is off this week. So you might get your rubbish bin collected. We have a kind of a two weekly schedule. So some people will get their recycling lifted this week and some people will get their bins lifted. Oh, OK. Then but if we're on strike again next week, those people will have another, you know, potentially two weeks of oh, the... rubbish to deal with. So it's not as easy as just ending the strike and that the problem being over. Oh yeah, well, uh, so, so that's uh, that's bins in the street. Uh, let's let's um, cheer things up. Kieran in Wales, uh, warm hubs. We talked about this a little bit on the show yesterday with a councillor in uh, Gateshead, actually. But it, this is, seems to be happening in Wales as well. This idea of sort of councils opening up buildings so that people can basically go and stay warm this winter. It's an amazing story. Yeah, I mean, it, it's very early stages yet, but I, I would strongly suspect that this is kind of going to be the first of probably a kind of a snowball effect of, uh, of these type of things being discussed for over the coming months. So this is some councillors in Swansea are kind of putting together their meeting with 
sort of community groups and church groups and and things like that basically looking not just for kind of council and municipal buildings but but other buildings where they can kind of open up whether it's community halls or church halls um yeah for people effectively that that can't afford their heating and that they can go and basically sit in a place all day and and remain warm i mean it's very much at the early stages of planning because obviously you then start to get into issues not just of where they can be in terms of logistically you know i'm sure there will be plenty of organizations that, that have space that would be potentially willing to offer them but you then need you know a source of, of finance for that you know churches or community councils or whatever don't have infinite sums of money to to fund the heating being on you know 12 14 24 hours a day you know you i mean there was even a suggestion from um some of the councillors in swansea that they would potentially need kind of volunteers to man the places to kind of make them safe and make sure you know potentially i suppose that they weren't over capacity it's um it's a really um, troubling kind of prospect isn't it yeah absolutely and just a sign of well to some extent local authorities as they often do in these things, you know, they're right on the front line and they're thinking about these things more than more than what's coming out of central government right now. Um, I think we've got you back, Brendan. In, are you there, Brendan in Belfast? I'm indeed, yeah. Ah, there we are. You've got you back. Lovely stuff. Uh, yeah, tell me this story about um, Stormont and the university. There's a row going on. Yes, as there always is in Northern Ireland. Another row is going on. So basically, there, Northern Ireland has two main universities. We have Queen's University, Belfast, and Ulster University, which has a number of campuses across the region. And Ulster University, for a number of years now, has been developing a large um, university campus in the city centre of Belfast, a £370 million redevelopment of what was there previously, bringing 15,500 students and staff into the city centre. So it's going to be a big investment in the city. But there are concerns over an influx of thousands of students having to cross a busy road of up to eight lanes of traffic to reach the campus. And that's because the the campus is beside a junction at York Street and Great Patrick Street, which connects to the West Link, the M2 and M3, three of Northern Ireland's busiest roads. And in the period of time when this campus has been in development, a number of high-rise student apartment blocks have been built in recent years by private developers um, across this junction, providing accommodation for almost 2,000 people. So the concern really is that now there will be 2,000 people come next month when the semester begins, having to cross this busy road of eight lanes of traffic. There are traffic lights there, but the, the concern is that really it won't be enough to try and facilitate the large numbers of students who will have to cross this this crossing every single day. Yeah. The, the row is that um, the, the Stormont Department, the Infrastructure Department, which would be in charge of roads, it has been accused of passing the buck on these safety concerns because while the Ulster University says that a multi-agency working group has made proposals for changes to this junction, um, it says that formal decisions from the department are still pending. But the department, on the other hand, says that uh, it was for the university to arrange any road infrastructure improvements and it says it has not proposed any improvements to this junction. So it says that while there will be some um, interim measures put in place um, in the, the coming months but not in time for the new semester, um, it seems that there won't be any long-term improvements in the foreseeable future. Um, just finally, before we we'll move on and do the, the fun stories uh, in a minute, I'm just interested as to 
the extent to which uh, the new Prime Minister will make any difference in your patch next week. What's the, what's the expectation levels uh, for the new the new Prime Minister? Um, first of all, you, Sarah, in, in Brighton. Well, this is the People's Republic of Brighton and Hove. We've got <laughs> two Labour MPs and one Green MP and a minority Green administration with a Labour opposition working in cooperation. Yes, we, we have Conservatives. We have our little bundle on the council. They're all very excited. Um, so they, they've, been, they've been quite supportive of Boris Johnson. So uh, none of them have actually really come out and said who they're supporting. So it'll be interesting to see how they they react. But yeah, we're, we're, we're a sort of socialist uh, island, you know, <laughs> conservatism yes. here in what, the southeast. What's it's, going it's on? Quite what's going on into the, the Tory uh, the Tory parties? Is a sort of a distant thing that's happening somewhere else. Uh, what about in Wales, Kieran? Well, I mean, it, it's going to be a case of whether or not the new prime minister wants to and and is able to mend fences with um, Mark Drakeford, really, and the and the administration in Cardiff Bay after the kind of prickly to say the least relationship during the pandemic and over the last couple of years between um, Boris Johnson and Mark Drakeford in particular. I mean, Liz Truss kind of nailed her colours to the mast. She came down here uh, along with Rishi Sunak for hustings a, a few weeks ago and she called um, Mark Drakeford a, a low energy Jeremy Corbyn and said that all he ever did was talk the UK down. So you'd suspect that their first phone call might be um, less than cordial. Uh, Rishi Sunak was slightly more measured, but yeah, there's... There's still a lot of work to do, and I think that will be that will be the, the real bellwether test, the, the level of sort of respect and mutual cooperation between those two administrations. Yeah, no, exactly. Is that yeah? And in fact, we're going to hear from uh, Andrew R. T. Davis in uh, the next hour. Spoke to him and uh, and Douglas Ross, the Scottish Tory leader, are having a day out today in Wales. Um, in Scotland, then, Rachel, what, what's the what's the what's the level of expectation here? If I mean, there's no love lost between Liz Truss and and Nicola Sturgeon for sure. No, absolutely not. I think her, you know, she called, Liz Truss called Nicola Sturgeon an attention seeker, um, which went down as well as anybody could expect it would be. Um, we know that Liz Truss has spoken about oil and how she wants to drill in the North Sea, set up more drilling there, something Nicola Sturgeon is completely opposed to. And, you know, the new Prime Minister will go almost immediately into an independent row with the Scottish government. We know that a Conservative government's not going to allow an independence referendum, but we have the court case uh, coming up in October. The Scottish government going to court with the UK government to see if they can hold an independence referendum without Westminster given the go-ahead. So all these things are going to come to a bit of a head almost as soon as the new Prime Minister takes over. So it's not going to be a quiet time in Scotland, no. that's for sure. And, and Brendan, any hopes that either of them can get Stormont up and running again? I think that the, the hope of restoring Stormont will be pinned to the legislation which aims to override parts of the Northern Ireland Protocol. Certainly that's what the DUP really has said. They will go yeah. back into the executive if that legislation is passed and implemented. So Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak both say that they want to, in their words, fix the protocol. So we will see how they intend to do that. We'll wait and see. We'll see what happens next week. We'll try and end on a slightly lighter note as we continue our search for the most fun part of the country. Uh, as things stand, Scotland in the lead on 66, then England on 64, and Wales and Northern Ireland tied on 58 each. So uh, let's start in... Let's go to Wales first. Kieran Jones, your fun story, please. So we've all got used over the last couple of years to taking the best of our local area, and nowhere is this truer than... Uh, a place called Bluebell Wood, a, a beauty spot in Hanbraddock in Caffili County. Uh, as you can imagine, a Bluebell Wood, 
um, where people go picnicking, walking their dogs. But it, it's so popular with some local residents that they even apparently scatter the ashes of loved ones there to because they're so fond of it. Um, earlier this month, inexplicably and without pl planning permission, diggers moved in and basically ripped up this entire wood. Um, but because it's on private land, even though bluebells are protected, it was deemed that no actual offence had been committed. But nevertheless, 100 people ended up um, congregating, having a meeting with the council. So now, uh, weeks after, and I mean, if you look at the pictures of the excavation, it's probably six to eight feet, I would say, of just rubble and uh, land and whatever. Um, not only is the work stopping, the, the landowner has now got to put it back as it was um, and has agreed that there won't be any development there. So um, this spot will be completely returned to how it was, but um, it, it's just, it's mostly the extraordinary kind of site of eight eight feet or, or so. Yeah, of it's a, I mean, it, and, it's a and great diggers. big hole. They've dug a great yes. big hole there. Now they've got to fill it in and put the bluebells back. So it's a, it's a nice story in the end. In, uh, yeah, in, in, in the end. In the absolutely. end, it's a nice story. Uh, what about you in Northern Ireland? What have you got, Brendan? Well, there's a fish and chip shop in Glengormley to the north of Belfast, which has caused a bit of a stir online over a social media post. Now, this is the captain's table. It's a family-owned chippy. And they shared a Facebook photo on, of a Just Eat receipt that with, had a note for the restaurant attached to it that, you know, one of the, these receipts that has the request from the, the customer written into the receipt. And this note read, uh, my wife has just called our newborn daughter, Pakora after her face dish <laughs> from the captain's table. Just thought you'd like to know. And they shared this alongside an image of um, a newborn baby um, saying, now, this is a first. Welcome to the world, Pakora. We can't wait to meet you. However, not all is what it seemed because when contacted by Belfast Live, the, the owner of um, this chippy, Hilary Braniff, admitted that she'd made the story up. She said that it was to bring a little bit of cheer to the industry amid the cost of living crisis. And actually, the the newborn in the show is her first granddaughter, Grace, who was born on August the 24th. And she says she hoped that it'll give people a little bit of a laugh, but she also said that she now faces the issue of having to try and make sure people don't actually think her granddaughter <laughs> is named after her favourite hippie dish. She added when she was speaking to our reporter, she added, it could have been worse. It could have been nasty bap. <laughs> <laughs> that is a pretty good story. I was concerned it was fake news, but actually it's a nice story. We're trying to put a smile on people. So that's pretty good. Right, what have you got for us in Brighton then, Sarah? So has I so are you there? I am. Ah yes, yeah. Yeah, what have you got for what's your what's your story for us? We have many dogs wearing the cone of shame here in Brighton and Hove. And this is because in 2019 the council stopped using glyphosate glyphosate uh weed killer. And so now the barley grass, this this has been ongoing, the story in Brighton Hove, but it's the dogs now. The barley grass is just taking over the pavement. And a dog owner whose pup has basically had something in its paw or ear pretty much every week so far this year, she started a petition, Foxtail Barley Grass Seeds Must Go, and it's on the Change.org website, and she wants the council to start using weed killer again, because they have had um, about six people trying to clear the weeds from these streets, but we've got nearly a thousand kilometres of street. Wow. Brighton. 
and six people is not enough. And what is it poisonous to the dogs or makes them ill? No, the, the spears, this is what we used to call flea darts when I was a kid and throw them at each other in the school playground. Um, but it, they get embedded in the paws and they just go through and, and the dogs, their, their paws and their ears get infected. And in one sad case, we actually had a dog um, that swallowed this, a seed and died. Oh, God. The, yeah, so it, it there is a serious side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, you you, also, you I, I do spoke... also know that I love a dog story, so you've... Exactly, yeah. <laughs> I remember this from last you time. cynic. Um, <laughs> cynical. Um, I've, I've spoken to a few vets, and some of them are getting five or seven dogs a day. Wow. With these in their paws. So it, it's quite serious, but, you know, lots of images, dogs, cone of shame. Cone of shame, yeah, yeah. Right, go on then, Rachel. There's quite a lot of you to compete with there. What have you got for us in Scotland? Yeah, I don't know if I can compete with these. Um, so I have a story about a marble bust of Sir John Gordon, who was an MP and landowner in the Highlands. This bust was made in the 1728, and then it was entrusted to the local council. But it had been missing for decades and um, nobody had any idea where this was until a councillor um, picked up a doorstop which she thought was quite interesting which turned out to be this bust that had been missing um, but not only has she found it um, this bust is incredibly famous the artist who made it uh, has pieces in the palace of Versailles so it has now gone on tour of the world it's been in the Louvre in Paris it's been on display in LA and now the council have had it valued because they think they might try and sell it. And it's been valued at £1.4 million. Pounds. Wow. So it's a very expensive doorstop uh, that has been used by this council. And was it being used in the in the council as a doorstop? It was being used in one of the one of the offshoot offices um, of the, <laughs> the local council. Oh, that is quite good. Oh, <laughs> what am I going to do? Uh, I... <clears throat> Well, I can't reward. I mean, it's it's an important story, the one about the dogs. But I'm not. I'm only going to give one one point to the dog story because we don't like sick dogs, and the council are being nasty. Uh, I think the the woman who claimed that her granddaughter had been named Pecora just to cheer up her customers. I think that's getting four points. I think <laughs> the so four points to Northern Ireland. We'll give three points to the marble bust that was used to pop open the door and is now worth one and a half million pounds. And so that means two points for the saved bluebells in Wales. So Scotland's still in that. Scotland is very... Tell you what, the Scots are very good at this. Very good at this. Uh, but we'll see how we get on before the end of the year. Thanks, guys. We really enjoyed that. Um, there was, I feel like we've covered a lot of ground, some of it pretty miserable, and then uh, ending on a lighter note. Uh, that was Sarah Booker-Lewis, who's the local democracy reporter of Brighton Hove News. Kieran Jones is head of news at Wales Online. Rachel Watson, the Scottish political editor of the Scottish Sun. And Brendan Hughes, political reporter for Belfast Life. Uh, thanks all for joining us. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from? <laughs>